So I was just reflecting there, and I was saying to John when I came in, uh, 18 years ago, when me and him were uh, sat in Mrs. Young's English class at Pontyland High School, talking not so much about English, but more about football and Everton and Manchester United. He, switched, he used to support Man United, you know, and then he switched his allegiance. But, 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 but I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I'll be honest, I used to support Chelsea and I used to support Leeds and now I support Newcastle United, so I, I can't criticise him. So I've been around the mill as well. And we used to talk about football and stuff, and, and I did not see the day coming where we'd be in church on a Sunday morning, he'd be leading the service and I would be preaching. But you know, that's just the grace of God. Uh, God's so good, and, and, and Jesus has plucked both of us, uh, a couple of sinners, and he's plucked us from the pit, and he's changed our lives, and here we are going on with God. And I was just said to him before, this, just before he got up to speak, God's got a sense of humour. You know, just, just amazing, it blows me away, but that's the God that we serve, and he's not dead, he's alive. Jesus is alive, and he, he wants to speak to us this morning through the Word of God. So if you've got your Bibles, um, which I hope you have, uh, if you could turn to Acts chapter 9, uh, that would be good. Acts chapter 9, second half of verse 19, we're going to kick off from, um, but it's really Acts 19, 20 to 31. And as I've, as I've just kind of come here, kind of fresh to speak from Acts, we're actually preaching through Matthew in our church. I've had to do a little bit of background reading to kind of find out where you guys have been journeying through. Um, and I've been reading the context, and, and obviously I see that last week that you were looking at the conversion of uh, Saul on the road to Damascus. And as I was reading that and doing the background reading for this morning, it got me thinking about my own conversion. And uh, you won't be surprised to hear that mine wasn't quite as dramatic as Saul's. I imagine yours probably wasn't either. I didn't have a vision of Jesus as I was walking along the road. I wasn't blinded for three days, thank God. And uh, the Lord didn't prophetically direct somebody to me um, to confirm my experience like he did um, with Saul where he, uh, he sent to him Ananias. However, my conversion does have similarities uh, with Saul's. I was a slanderer, I was a persecutor of God's people, although not quite on the level of uh, Saul, who called himself the chief of sinners, uh, you'll, you'll be pleased to hear. And when Jesus was made known to me, although he wasn't made known to me through a vision, but through gospel preaching, I was filled with the Holy Spirit in an instant, and my whole disposition changed within a couple of minutes. I mean, literally, uh, my thoughts changed, my feelings changed, my whole attitude towards God changed when I heard the gospel preached and I responded to the gospel. I was transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And for any of us who've put our trust in Jesus, we all have something in common with Saul of Tarsus. God has worked a miracle, nothing short of a miracle in our lives. It doesn't matter if your conversion was sudden like Saul's was, or kind of like mine was, or if it was a, a gradual process over a number of years. It doesn't matter if you were an active persecutor of God's people, or you were a skeptical atheist, or you were just like a quiet agnostic. If you've trusted in Jesus, you've experienced the work of the Holy Spirit, where he's entered into your inner being, and he's changed your heart, and he continues to change your heart. He's committed to change you to be more like him. That's what happened to Saul 
his heart was changed in a big, big way on the road to Damascus. Saul was really one of the chief protagonists in stirring up hatred and murder against Christians. He'd already overseen the, the stoning of Stephen for being a follower of Christ. And no doubt he overseen the persecution and the killings of many other nameless ones that we don't read about in the book of Acts. But then he's on the road to carry out his evil deeds. He's on the way to Damascus. He's just got permission from the chief priests to go and search the synagogues of Damascus, find followers of Jesus, and bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem to persecute them and to probably kill them as they did with Stephen. There he is on the road. Jesus shows up as he does and everything changes. He's blinded his soul for three days. Ananias is sent to visit him. He regains his sight, it says, something like scales dropped from his eyes. He's filled with the Spirit. He's baptized. Now, I love this. He has some food and he's strengthened. They always seem to include food in the Bible. Remember the little girl who was raised from the dead? One of the first things Jesus said to, her, said, said to the people around her was get the little girl something to eat, which I thought was quite cute. We all, we all, need, we all need a good meal. So Saul has some food, he's strengthened. It's just amazing. It's a complete miracle. But the question is, what happens now? What happens now? He's had this amazing experience. He's had an encounter with Jesus. He's been converted. He's been baptized. What happens now? And this is where we arrive this morning in Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 20, or the second half of verse 19, up to verse 31. So let's just read through that and see how the story continues. It says about Saul that for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God and all who heard him were amazed and they said is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly, boldly, in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So this 
portion of text is immediately after Saul's conversion. I mean, a few days earlier, he was looking for Christians to murder. And here, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, he spends a few days with the disciples in Damascus, and we arrive here at Acts 9.20. And it's this transition here that really caused me to think about my own conversion. I was filled with the Holy Spirit, and my life and my eternity changed forever on the 21st of August, 2006. I'll, I'll never forget the day, because when God shows up in that kind of way, you, just, you never forget the day. You never forget what it was like. You, never, you, you don't even forget what the sky was like. I mean, you remember everything about that day. I don't know the exact time. It was probably around half seven in the evening. And I was in this big tent. And I just heard this guy called J. John, who some of you will have heard of. He's a good evangelist. I just heard him preach the gospel. There's about 6,000 people in this tent. And they did an altar call for anybody who wanted to give their lives to Jesus. You had to stand up and you had to go to the front. It was quite nerve-wracking. And I went forward and I prayed a simple prayer to put my trust in Jesus Christ. And then after I prayed and they prayed for us, J. John said to us, he said, okay guys, this is what we're going to do. You guys who've just prayed this prayer, you're now going to go outside and there's a smaller tent outside. And you're going to go to this smaller tent and when you get there, someone's going to pray for you, they're going to give you some resources. Then after you've done that, we're going to wait for you when there's 6,000 people in this tent. He says, we're all going to wait for you. There's about 30 of us. When you come back in, I want to be the first person to preach a message to you. I want you to hear the message I'm going to preach as the first message you hear is a Christian person. So the 30 of us leave. We leave the big tent. We go into the smaller tent. We get prayed for. It takes about 20 minutes. We come back inside where there's like 5,960, 70-odd people welcoming us. Give us a round of applause. We go back in. We're all a bit sheepish, all a bit embarrassed. And um, J. John gets ready to preach his message to us 30 new disciples. And I mean, we're brand new. We're 20 minutes old in the Lord. And he says this to us. He says, okay, now you're all Christians. Now you're all born again. Now you've got the same spirit living inside of you that I have and the rest of us have. I'm going to preach to you and I'm going to tell you why when you go from here, you need to share the gospel with every single person you meet. This is the first thing you need to know as a new Christian. You know, there's, there's no breathing space. There's no time to get your feet under the Christian table, as it were. There's no time to relax. It was a case of, look, I've shared the gospel with you. You've responded. Now you go and share it with the world. You know, you've been blessed. Now you go and be a blessing. And of course, this was extremely difficult. It was especially difficult for me. Um, I came from a non-Christian family. None of my friends in Newcastle were Christians. I knew if I went home and I did this, I would be ridiculed. Um, you know, my plan, I kind of wanted to leave this place, which was down in Shepton Mallet, come home, find a big church in Newcastle. This was my plan. I would kind of hide, I would sneak in, hide away at the back, you know, I would kind of get used to having a personal relationship with Jesus myself. I would probably learn a few of the worship songs, learn a few Bible verses, and kind of settle in nicely at my own pace. And then maybe, after a while, I would kind of grad... I wouldn't tell anyone I was going to church, but maybe after a while I would then gradually break it to my friends and my family that I'd start popping along to church every now and again and 
maybe if I didn't try to convert them, they would go easy on me. Right? That was my plan. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but that was my plan. But of course, that wasn't God's plan for me. And beloved, that's not God's plan for you either. That's what you're doing, or that's what you're trying to do. That's what you're still doing. That is not God's will for your life. Jadron was right. I'd joined the army of God, and I was now to go on a mission. I was to join the army and go on a mission. I'd signed up. Now I was in Christ, my only reason for remaining on the earth. And I don't say that lightly. I'm serious. My only reason for remaining on this earth and not going to be with the Lord right away is to tell other people about Jesus Christ and bring other people to him. All of the other stuff I can do when I'm in heaven. I can pray, I can grow in the knowledge of God, I can do all of those things in heaven, and where to do those things on the earth. But the one thing that I can't do in heaven, that I can't do on the earth, is I can tell lost and broken people about the only one who can give them eternal life. You know, Paul said this in his letter to the church at Philippi, and I actually preached this last time I was here. He said, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I gave you guys all, for those of you who are here, I give you a little slip. And I said, what is it for you? To live is what? To die is what? Because for Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he said this, he continued, he said, if I live, that means fruitful labor for me. That's all it meant. If I live, if I remain on the earth for the rest of my days, that means fruitful labor for me. The life's purpose of a Christian is a citizen of heaven who, now I find myself on the earth and I've given my life to Christ and now I'm an alien here. I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. My life's mission should be to to do fruitful labor for the Lord. And that's what we see here in Acts 9, 20 to 31. It's exactly that, it, we see exactly that Paul does what J. John told me and the other converts we should do. He gets on with the mission at hand. And this morning I want to touch on three points that we can learn from Paul's life about our personal witness to the world. We can't individually witness to the whole world, but every single person in this room has a sphere of influence with friends, with family, with work colleagues, with acquaintances, and even with strangers that you'll meet for a short space of time in which we're called to be faithful to share the gospel. Now, witnessing isn't something that comes naturally. And I know that. I feel that. It it doesn't come naturally. Our flesh does not want to go out and witness. We need to choose every single day. It's a choice to confess Jesus Christ. And I really hope that Paul's example is going to be a real encouragement for you this morning. So here's point number one of three points I've got for you. God wants you to share the gospel starting today. Not tomorrow, not Tuesday, not Wednesday. God wants you to share the gospel starting today. Let's just look at verse 20. It says that Paul... Um, it, it says of Saul that immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Immediately meaning without delay. Meaning straight away. A moment before, he's killing people because they proclaim Jesus. And, and, and just so you know, as an aside, persecution doesn't happen because we heal the sick. 
Persecution doesn't happen because we pluck people out of poverty. Although we should do all of those things. Persecution arises when we proclaim the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus that offends the powers and the principalities of darkness. It's the name, it's the name of Jesus that's a threat to false religions. It's the name of Jesus that Satan wants to do everything in his power to suppress. The devil will happily let you speak of God, of faith, of spirituality, all the day long. He'll happily leave us to our own devices as we do acts of mercy. But when the name of Jesus is lifted up as a banner, when the name of Jesus goes forth from your lips, that's when opposition is stirred up. It really is. It really is. And the devil, having a grip of Saul's life before he was converted, caused him to seek, to go to crazy lengths, to even get permission to do it from the chief priests, to seek and suppress Jesus' name by killing the faithful, gospel-preaching disciples of Jesus. And now, immediately after conversion, Saul, Saul's changed teams. I mean, it's like, it's like Alan Shearer signing for Sunderland and then coming back and scoring a hat-trick at St. James's Park. Not in Newcastle's darkness and Sunderland's light, don't get me wrong, I'm definitely not saying that. But I mean, it's a, comp- I mean, it's a crazy U-turn that's happened in Saul's life. He's just been converted, and, and now he's been converted. Did he have reasons not to proclaim the gospel of Jesus? Did he have any reasons just to remain quiet? Absolutely he did. Absolutely. How many of us, if we were in Saul's shoes, would think to ourselves, hold on, wait a minute, I've just been trying to kill these guys. Now I've been converted, maybe I should just lay low for a little while and not start preaching, lest these guys think I'm a hypocrite. How many of us would think that? Maybe maybe actually I shouldn't start preaching because people see my former life and now I've just been converted and if I start preaching to them, they're going to think I'm a complete hypocrite. How many of us would think, well, maybe I shouldn't be so quick to preach because I don't yet know enough about Jesus and folks might start asking me some difficult questions. (gasps) What if they ask about suffering? (gasps) What am I going to (sighs) do? Probably best I don't mention the name of Jesus. You know, out of everybody in history who's been converted, I imagine Saul could have had more excuses than most for laying off the preaching for a little while, just until things died down. So I wonder if you've experienced these thoughts in your life. Maybe you still do. You know deep down that God wants you to be a faithful witness of Christ. He wants you to share the gospel, but you reason it, you reason it away in your mind. I'm not ready yet. I've not proven myself as a Christian if there is such a thing. I've not been to Bible college. I don't know enough of the Bible. People might think I'm a hypocrite. I want to encourage you this morning, if you've given your life to Jesus, even if you just did it there in the worship, you're ready to start witnessing to other people. You're ready to start sharing the gospel. Maybe you've just become a Christian and you're concerned you don't know enough about Jesus yet, and I understand how that feels. But I just want to point out something to you from verses 20 to 22. When Saul starts preaching, 
just try and follow this along if you can in your Bibles. When he starts preaching, it says he simply proclaimed, He is the Son of God. That's his message. Jesus is the Son of God. He's simply saying, look, Jesus has come from God. He's pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. He's saying, in effect, if you want a relationship with God, you have to go through Jesus. That was his very simple message as a new convert. It wasn't any more complex than that. He is the Son of God. He was just sharing what he knew. You know, Saul's immediate witness after conversion, it wasn't with wise words, it wasn't with persuasive words, he's not getting into debates, he's simply testifying to Jesus, the one he's encountered as being the Son of God. And even as new Christians, we can all do that. We can all say, look, this is what's happened to me. You, you see this transformation here? This isn't me, this is Jesus. That's, that's all he's doing. Now, interestingly, as you read through verses 21 to 22, it reads like it's one continuous event in Damascus. However, when you, you study it and you, you cross-reference it against other scriptures, you find that most scholars agree that there's a break that occurs in between verses 21 and verses 22. So in verse 21, people are responding with amazement to Saul's preaching. Just to a simple message, he's the son of God, it says they're amazed. And then in verse 22, it says that Saul increased in strength and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. And the general scholarly consensus is that between verse 21 and verse 22, Saul had a three-year gap, three-gap year break, where he went to Arabia. It's mentioned in Galatians 1, 17 to 18. He took a break in Arabia before he then returned to Damascus and the story's picked back up in verse 22 because he, he was strengthened. So what's particularly interesting is that immediately after Saul's conversion, he's simply preaching, Jesus is the Son of God and that message is enough to wow people with amazement. And you think, why would they be wowed with that? Jesus is the Son of God. Well, they're wowed because they've seen the incredible transformation in Saul's life. He doesn't need to debate. He doesn't need to try and convince them. People have seen the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. They're looking, thinking, oh my goodness, what's happened to this guy? And his message is, it's all about Jesus. It's just, this is what you see? Jesus. That's it. He's the Son of God. And after three years in Arabia, when he strengthened with the Spirit, and no doubt he studied a bit, he spent time in prayer, He's grown in his knowledge of the gospel. We pick the passage back up at verse 22 where it says this. It says, Saul confounded the Jews. That means they were amazed again. Saul amazed the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This time by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Do you see the difference in his witness? He's again confounding the Jews, but this time he's proving that Jesus is the Christ. Saul's gone from a simple proclaimer of the gospel, not a Scottish musician, a simple, pro a simple proclaimer of the gospel in verse 21 to an apologist, or we could say a seasoned evangelist, in verse 22. Now, look, not everyone is gifted to be an evangelist. But for some of you, as you faithfully exercise a simple witness, which we're all called to do, over time you're going to find 
that you have the gift of an evangelist. The difference between a witness and an evangelist is a witness simply stands there and says, look, this is, all I can tell you is this is what's happened to me. This is my testimony, like a witness would do in a courtroom. Stand in the dock, this is what's happened to me. Whereas an evangelist is more like a court barrister where they take all of the facts, in this case the facts of the gospel, and they present them to the person who's going to make a decision in such a way that they prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that what they're saying is true. And that's what Paul's able to do after three years of being strengthened in the faith and after three years of faithfully witnessing. Now, we're not all called to be evangelists, but we are all called to be witnesses. And what, what I can testify to in my life is that although my gifting is not primarily as an evangelist, um, as I've committed myself to faithfully share the gospel since my conversion, since I received that message from J. John, and as, as I've done that with friends and family and strangers, the stronger my gifting in evangelism has, has come. I mean, I used to shut the door in 10 seconds when a Jehovah's Witness knocked on my door. I mean, I just didn't want to talk to them. Now I go hunting for them on Northumberland Street. I mean, if you want to find them, they're outside of all the transport hubs now. That's their new strategy. I mean, go and find them. You know, I go, I go to the Islamic diversity stall on a Saturday and I hunt out the Muslims and I want to talk to them about Jesus. You know, when I first became a Christian, I would never have done that. I would have said, oh, well, this is what's happened to me. I would have never gone hunting for them. But that's what happens. God strengthens you as you just are faithful to testify to Jesus Christ. People ask you difficult questions. It's awkward at first. You don't know what to say. You go away. Oh, I've been a failure. You haven't been. You've been faithful to share, share your testimony. And as that happens more and more, you get strengthened and you're able to answer those questions and you're able to, to dialogue. And God knows it's a journey for us. So I just want to encourage you, start today. You don't need to be an expert. Start today. Commit this morning that you will start sharing a simple gospel message and you will do it immediately, even if it's just simply testifying to what Jesus has done in your life. Well, after a few days of confounding the Jews on his return to Damascus, Saul starts to come up against some strong opposition. And you see this in verses 23 to 25. We see... Um, the Jews are plotting to kill him. They were, they were so focused, they were so determined to take his life that they even gave up sleep and they camped outside the city walls of Damascus and they're waiting for him so they could ambush him. So was their determination to suppress the name of Jesus. You know, his gospel preaching had really riled them. And you know, whilst it would probably be more convincing if I, if I said to you, and I, I probably have... Um, better success rate if I said to you if you preach the gospel everybody will be your friend if I was to say that I would be completely going against the words of Jesus I'd be going against the experience of the apostles and I'd be going against all of church history Jesus said those who believe in him would have trouble he said when the world hates you know that they, they hate you because they hate me he said rejoice when you're persecuted for righteousness sake you see the name of Jesus is the only thing on this planet that can change destinies. Really, really. It, it's good to do acts of kindness. It's important to alleviate poverty. It's biblical to heal the sick. But the message of the cross is the only thing with the power 
to transform the heart and the eternal destiny of a person. The gospel is the only thing that can bring fullness of life. And so when it's preached, the powers and the principalities of darkness headed by Satan will seek to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And they'll seek to silence the message by any means possible. But friends, our calling to carry this message is a high, high calling. We, we have a message where, where messengers with a message that brings life, that changes lives. And we're not to fear. He, he who's in us is greater than he who is in the world. So, so yeah, I, I'm going to promise you something. As you share the gospel and you do it faithfully, you will lose friends. You will lose friends. Not you might lose friends. You will lose friends. I've lost lots of friends since I started preaching the gospel. A lot of my old friends, they won't speak to me. They won't spend time with me. They don't want to know because they don't want to hear the gospel. And you will gain enemies. A guy once said, if you don't have any, any enemies in your life, you've never stood for anything in your life. I want to ask you this morning, do you have any enemies? If you don't, are you preaching the gospel? But the thing is this, you, if you do faithfully preach the gospel, you might lose friends, you might gain some enemies, you will. Uh, but you'll also gain testimonies of transformed lives and transformed destinies. And the cause is completely and utterly worth the cost. It really is. When you see someone go from death to life, the cause is worth the cost. It was for Saul. He said in 1 Corinthians 15 that the most important thing he could deliver to people was the gospel. And that's how it should be for every single Christian in this room too. Yeah, you know, do all of the other stuff that God's called you to do. But in terms of outreach, the central and primary importance is the message of Jesus Christ. And as we read on, we come to verses 26 to 30. And we see Saul faces a few problems as he returns to Jerusalem after his conversion. So he's, he's in Damascus, he goes to Arabia, he comes back to Damascus, he then goes back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the place where Saul had spent most of his time persecuting the church. So he's been away for over, over three years and then he comes back to Jerusalem, a changed man. And then he's looking to join the very same group of believers that he'd previously been seeking to kill. Just, just think about that. So he's, he's, he's been trying to kill them. He's gone away on a mission to kill some more. His life gets changed, spends three years away, and then he appears back and he wants to join their group. <laughs> it says in verse 26 that the believers weren't all that keen to embrace him as they were afraid of him. You, you can't blame them, can you, to be fair? I mean, you know, in modern-day terms, you'd compare Saul's level of zeal to persecute Christians probably to an ISIS general or somebody of that ilk. I mean, that's really the kind of guy Saul was. Imagine, imagine Jihadi John asking a group of Christians in Syria if he could join their group. He goes along, you know, they have changed. I'm a changed man. Hey, can, can, I, can I join the Bible study? You know, can, can, can I come to the prayer meeting? <laughs> You'd forgive the church for being slightly sceptical that it might just be a setup. You know, and that's exactly what the believers in Jerusalem thought when Saul returns. So the question is this, how did Saul eventually get accepted 
into the group of disciples in Jerusalem. Well, as we read on, it says that Barnabas was an advocate for Saul. He spoke to the other disciples in Jerusalem and he, he convinced them that Saul was indeed a true Christian. He convinced them that Saul's conversion was genuine. And Barnabas must have been pretty good. I mean, he must have been pretty persuasive because if I was in their shoes, it would take a heck of a lot of convincing for me to break bread with a guy who'd been mercilessly killing my brothers and sisters in the Lord. So what did Barnabas say to them to convince them to allow Saul to join their little Bible study? We've got this little insight in verse 27. It says that Barnabas brought Saul to the apostles and he told them two things. Two things. Number one, he told them about Saul's conversion experience. But the question is this. It's second hand. How would they even know that was genuine? How many of us hear of people having visions of heaven and all different kinds of things and we say, uh, they're just trying to sell books. You know, we're not really sure that's genuine. We're skeptical, aren't we? What else did Barnabas tell them? Because I don't think that would have been quite enough for them to receive Saul in. It says that Barnabas testified how Saul had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. Then it goes on to record how Saul continued to preach Jesus in Jerusalem, even to the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, of course, which Saul was one of them himself. Then we read in verse 30 that when the apostles who previously rejected Saul learned that the Hellenists wanted to kill him, they came to his assistance and they helped him escape to Tarsus. So we see in verse 30, they finally accepted him as one of their brothers. So my second point is this, and it's a shorter point, but it's an important point. A public witness of Jesus is a mark of a true Christian. A public witness of Jesus is a mark of a true Christian. I'd go even further than that, and I would say that it's the first and it's the primary mark of a true Christian. That's why we do baptism, so we can proclaim on the outside what's happened on the inside. It's not the only evidence of new life in Jesus. 1 John gives us lots of other things we should look for, increasing in holiness, um, an attitude like a hatred of sin, you know, all of these kind of things, and we'll look at those things and fruit in our lives. But in this example, it was Saul's public witness of Jesus that convinced the apostles that his faith was genuine. I mean, they were frightened of this guy. They had every reason to doubt this guy. But as Barnabas testified to Saul's preaching in Damascus, and then as they looked on and they saw him witnessing boldly to his own people in the name of the Lord, they, they looked at this guy and they said to themselves, man, this guy's genuine. He's a real Christian. He has to be. He wouldn't be doing that if he wasn't. He's really a follower of Jesus. You know, I used to go around and I used to visit a lot of churches with my work with street pastors, numerous different churches, and I would talk about our work on the streets and time and time and time again I would get the same thing coming back to me people would come and they would say you know I like how you help vulnerable people but I just don't think I should push my faith onto anyone you know my faith is a private thing it's, it's a private thing between me and Jesus friends if if you're a true follower of Jesus and again I don't say this lightly if you're a true follower of Jesus, you do not have the option to keep your faith private. He doesn't give you 
that option when you sign up. It's not, it's not one of the things on the job description that you can tick. You really don't have, you don't have that option. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. He's very, very straightforward. He's very down the line. Jesus requires every believer to publicly acknowledge him. I want you to imagine a husband and a wife together and they love one another and together in the privacy of their own home. The wife is completely devoted to the husband. She lies on the couch with him. They watch movies together. She whispers in his ear, tells him how much she loves him, how they were meant to be together, how he's the most amazing man in the world, the most best bloke she's ever met in her life. She's totally devoted to him. You know, she, she serves him by doing jobs around the house. She even writes down little notes so when he gets home from work, um, you know, I love you so much, you know, your dinner's in the microwave, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, they really love one another. And then one day, this husband and the wife, they go out shopping together to Eldon Square. Well, she goes out shopping and she takes him along for the ride. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, he goes shopping, he goes in and out, and he's done. I mean, they really go shopping together. And the wife bumps into a friend she's not seen for a long, long time. And they're outside of the shop and they start chatting and chatting, chatting and chatting as ladies sometimes do. My wife's not here so I can say that. And this has been recorded though. And, uh, and the husband's kind of hanging around in the vicinity as we do, just kind of waiting with our hands in our pockets. And... Um, this long-lost friend says to the wife within earshot of the husband, are you with him? Like, is not that good looking. Is he yours? You know, does he belong to you? And the wife is kind of like, oh, well, I kind of know him. We're out shopping together, but yeah, don't really know him that well. Anyway, let me just tell you about this. And she drags her off. You know, we're not, we're not together or anything, but, but just, just come over here and let me tell you a Oh, it's a nice dress in the shop, isn't it? Changes the subject. You know, many of us are like that with Jesus. Come to church on a Sunday. And in the relative privacy of the four walls of our church building, we tell him how much we love him. We say, I, sur I surrender all to you, Jesus. All to Jesus I surrender. I surrender all. We love you. You're the king of glory, Jesus. We've just been doing it. I love you so much, Jesus. My saviour, you died on the cross for me. You're so wonderful, Jesus. We're so committed to you, Jesus. We pour our devotion on you, Jesus. And then in the week, we're in Eldon Square and we bump into a friend we've not seen for a long time and they say, hey, so what's new in your life? What's going on with you? Hey did, hey, did I read on Facebook that you're going to church? What's that about? You're not going to start telling me how Jesus loves me, are you? You're not going to bash me with your Bible. We kind of go, ah, yeah, well, go to church sometimes, but, you know, everyone to their own. Anyway, that's a nice dress, isn't it? In the window. Or 
oh, hey, have you heard Steve McLaren's just become the new manager of Newcastle? And then we talk about Steve McLaren for the next half an hour. We kind of push Jesus to the bottom of the agenda. Do you know, in the Bible, one of the names for Jesus is the bridegroom. You know he's called the bridegroom in the Bible. Do you know the church, we are called the bride. Okay? It's nothing sexual. It's nothing sensual. It doesn't mean Jesus is our boyfriend. Don't need to worry about that. Men especially. But God simply gives those terms to help us understand how Jesus feels about us and how he wants us to relate to him. He's a bridegroom who is jealous for the love of his bride. Imagine how the husband felt in the story where the wife disowned him. He could hear what was going on. Imagine how that made him feel. At home, she's totally devoted and she's pouring her love upon him. In public, she's just a little bit embarrassed about the relationship. Are you like that with Jesus? When someone says, you're not going to talk about him, are you? Do you say, oh, oh no, 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 let's talk about something else. Let's talk, about, let's talk about football. Let's talk about something else. Or do you say, not talk about him. He's the most amazing man in the history of the world. There is no one like him. Not talk about him. You need to know him. He's glorious. I love him. I'm dead to my life. I live for him. My whole life is about him. You need to know him. You see, just listen to me. Hear me for 10 minutes. Let me tell you about this one who's redeemed me. God is looking for a bride that will be equally yoked to the bridegroom in love. That we will feel about him the way he feels about us. When Jesus hung on the cross bleeding for our sin, he was not ashamed of us. He's looking for people who will be unapologetic about their faith and unashamedly zealous for his name. And that's exactly what Saul was like. Even unto death, Jesus was the lover of his soul and he'd be faithful to confess his name to anyone and everyone who would listen. And that brings me on to the final verse of this section and my final point, and I promise this one's even shorter. Verse 31, coming to land with this. It says, so, as a result of Saul's preaching, that's the context, the church had peace and was built up, was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The, point, the, the final point I've got for you is this this morning. Faithful witnessing strengthens and grows the church. Faithful witnessing strengthens and grows the church. As a result of Saul's preaching, the church had peace, the church was built up, the church walked in the fear of the Lord, the church walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied, and it grew. Now, if we had a church meeting today, or we had an elders meeting, and I'm, I'm, I'm not just speaking this about region, I'm talking about our church as well, at Gateway, and we pinpointed that we wanted all of those five benefits for our congregation, peace, building up, fear of the Lord, comfort of the Spirit, the church multiplying, we would probably come up with five different strategies or five different programs or five different courses to try and achieve those aims. 
you know, we'd have an inner healing course to bring peace. We'd have a spiritual gifts course to build up. We'd have a Bible meditation course to grow in the fear of the Lord. We'd have a prayer ministry course for the comfort of the Spirit. Um, we'd attend probably a church growth conference to learn the latest model of engaging with our community in a way that's relevant. And I'm not saying those things are wrong, but there needs to come a time where we pick up this book and we read that the God that we serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the gospel that Saul preached has the same power as the gospel that we preached today. And the Holy Spirit that lives in us is the same Holy Spirit that lived in Saul and is the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Imagine if Regent, imagine if, if Gateway were places where people came in and felt the peace of the Lord in the midst of the chaos of the world. Imagine if our church was built up and strengthened. Imagine every believer walking in reverence and fear and awe of the Lord. Imagine salvation in Gosforth and in the surrounding areas springing up from the ground. I mean, that sounds like revival to me. And we pray for it. And I am all about prayer. I'm given to a life of prayer. But God won't preach the gospel for us. That's our assignment. He, he's willing to pour out his spirit on our weak efforts. And, and trust me, when I share the gospel, it feels weak. But he's waiting for the church to say yes to the Great Commission. Yes to a public, bold, courageous witness of Christ. And yes to being completely unashamed of Jesus Christ what he's waiting for let's, let's, pray. let's pray Father we, we give you thanks that you loved us while we were still in our sin and we think about this saviour oh God who died for us upon the cross who died upon Calvary for us who shed his blood for us whose body was broken for us who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, who as he hung upon the cross, he saw the joy of his future inheritance, which is us, the bride of Christ, that he would have a people for himself who would be devoted to him in love. Lord, we, Lord, we confess that at times we're, we're ashamed to speak your name. And we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness when we just want to give you an hour of our weeks. We get edgy at giving you any more than that. Lord, we, we ask for your forgiveness when we shirk away, when, when people ask us to give an account for the hope that we have. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, your love would cast out any fear in our lives. Pray for anyone who is afraid of sharing the gospel. And I confess I am at times as well. So I pray for myself too. I ask that you would fill us with the Spirit of the Lord. Fill us with the Spirit this morning. That we would overflow with the love of Christ. And we would be bold and courageous in our gospel preaching. In Jesus' name.